Welcome to the Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we heard new music from one of our city's leading talents, talked about Chicago's renaissance, and chatted about the challenges of digital media. All this, plus size matters, are we cool yet, and the Trump Diaries, all only on the Lumpen Week in Review for April 26, 2019. Mario Smith spoke with Johnny Lucky Otis about his music, his difficult relationship with his famous father, and being the son of one of the GTOs. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining me on the phone right now is a multi-instrumentalist, unbelievably cool cat. Years ago, not that, I made it sound like 100 years ago, but a few years back, me and my man Gary Tyson, when we were doing this show inside of a broom closet at the University of Chicago, uh, Lucky Otis came on our show, and uh, it was one of the best interviews I've ever had, one of the greatest conversations I've ever had, and I would love for you to welcome my friend, Lucky Otis. What's up, brother? Mario. Yes, sir. How you doing? Hey, man. Long time no talk. We've been talking on Facebook for like a week, but it's good to hear your voice. Yeah, we ha- we've been having a, a secret side conversation. <laughs> if, only, if only they could see what we... You know what I mean? Hey, Jen- Jennifer Anderson been hitting me up, man. She's been hitting me up trying to get to you, man. So I don't know what's going on with that. So we'll, like, hey. we'll, we'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, 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 I had the pleasure of, uh, and I want to thank Gary Tyson, too. Uh, my man, Gary, Gary, I, I won't even start because I, I, I'm a cancer and I won't stop. But that's my brother. I, I truly appreciate that he made this connection happen. Um, he had you on WGFM with him on the 13th. And... I listened to the interview, and there's I, 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 there's so much stuff <laughs> in the Otis family uh, cookbook, if you will. Um, first, how have you been? Excellent. It's funny that you said that. Grandpa actually, uh, Johnny, wrote a cookbook called Red Beans and Rice and Everything Nice or something, and I, I have a recipe in that thing. It's pretty funny. Uh, of course he wrote a cookbook. He did everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excellent. Um you know, it's been like I said a few years, but we've been catching up with each other here and there. I've been seeing you, you know, wilding out, and 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 I've been busy, as you can see, been doing a lot of things. But um, I'm still working on my record. You know, let's just cut to the chase. I'm still working on. It. I announced it about about time we talked. You know, yeah. maybe years ago, a little more than that. And uh, I said, you know what? It, it, you know, maybe six or seven years ago. Now it's going to be perfect timing. You know, as they say, it's it's going to be, you know, because I mean, pe- people probably put out maybe. Seven or seven hundred whack albums, you know. Since then, you know what I mean. So, yeah. if I want to put one really, you know. Oh, you remember that one? Yeah, I don't want people to go. Oh, you remember that Lucky Otis one? Which one? You know, it's like right. oh, boom. You know, I got this thing that I'm 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 sitting on. So, concept album after concept album, I've been stacking up in my brain, and it's it's bulging out. See, Prince was smart. Sugar Otis was smart. They they uh they they put cassettes uh, in the wall. Stack, 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 stack. I used to do that too. But, you know, moving around and stuff like that, you know, I've been living the life. So um, <clears throat> I, I've just been, you know, all my archives are everywhere. Like, you can ask someone, say, hey, what's up with the Lucky Otis tracks? It's like, oh, I got some right here. Right. And I worked with a lot of different people over the years, and I've tried to call them back. And, 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 and they hold on to it like a little cookie, you know, that they stole out of the jar and ran off with it because, you know, it's got some magic to it. Right. You know, so that's that's. That's where I'm at now, uh, consolidating, becoming more uh, business-like, if you will, mm-hmm. which is totally the opposite of what I've always been, but I've always been around it. You know, my grandfather took care of everything. My grandmother took care of everything. So 
it was a matter of, okay, now they're gone. You know, uh, my grandfather in 2012 and my grandmother in uh, 2016. Yeah. So just me on my own, me doing my thing. And uh, away from the family, I, I cut ties. Mm. You know, that, that's going to be in the book. That's what I'm, I'm working on. No one really knows about the book because I don't talk about it much. I let everyone else talk about their books uh, because I don't want to flood people with too much info because I have way too much info. It, it, it's like not even just three generations, maybe four generations, and we go into some timeless history. You know, we're talking about, you know, all the... You, you, you mentioned Moonwalk with the, with the, you know, in your, you said something about Moonwalking right. earlier. I was, and it's like people always talk about Michael Jackson invented it. No, man, and, and they say Bill Bailey invented it in the 50s. No, man, go watch Cabin in the Sky, 1943. Had an all-black cast, Lena Horne, all that. Bill yeah. Bailey has some... Has some slip, has some house slippers on, <laughs> <laughs> and he does about three steps. So, and I bet you get what people had feet before then. They probably did that years and eons and centuries and millennia before that. So, yeah. so uh, who knows who invented it? You yeah. know, maybe great, great, great. You know, grandmother, grandpa, don't matter. So, you know, we, we just got to understand the history. Of, and man, I got to tell you. You're, this show is amazing, man. I, 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 we need something like that out in California, so I'm so glad that I got the uh, the link. Yeah, <laughs> man. Tell 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 my LA people to get with it. We doing things down here on 32nd Street in Chicago. We trying to, you know, the the, the idea of this show or any good radio show, Gary's show, anybody's show is is to uh, particularly in the format that we're doing this is to present a different point of view from terrestrial radio and and the, this the fake talk show. Hey, what do you feel about ham and eggs? Uh, like, you know, give me a call. That That's played. We're not doing that anymore. We, we're trying to talk to people, play good music, really have a conversation and, and enjoy ourselves, you know, not be forced, but 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 to, but to share. But I want to ask you something. You said, um, I don't want this to be all about the the great. I, I underline great three times and I underline the like four times. The great johnny otis and the amazing suggy otis and and your brother eric and your mom and i i, I want to keep talking to you about that but i gotta ask you said you were estranged from your family um yeah uh and, and well, I'll, I'll uh, break it, it down. yeah could you for me it's the it's the it's, it's, it's the it's, it's the last will and testament and uh i hope you're hearing this because <clears throat> what happens is in in your life you you, you you're one of the kids you know um there's there's, there's you're one of them. You take a picture, and there's all these kids, and and as you grow up, you 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 become more you. You become stronger in your thoughts and your and your feelings and your actions, and that freaks people out, especially people close to you in the family. And I found that out firsthand because I think what really happened is, when you know the God the, the Godfather of rhythm and blues, the original king of rock and roll. We can go into all this discussion. It's just like uh, Jordan and LeBron and all this. Mm-hmm. Crap! They talked about you know who's the best, who did this. They called him the king of rock and roll first. Elvis got the hound dog from Johnny Otis. I've been watching people say, "Oh, Johnny Otis didn't write that." It's funny that he got ripped off from it, but that's a whole other story because he was a part of the a, a, a three man songwriting team. Him, uh, Jerry Lieber, and Mike Stoller, and they even wrote a book called Hound Dog, where in chapter six or seven they they they, they discuss the session. And you and I, we we can go right into it and look at it right. And say, oh, that is where you know I'm I'm a I'm, I'm a Sherlock. You know, you mentioned cancer. I have my Mercury and Scorpio, which which means one thing: I pay very close attention to detail. I don't like to leave stones unturned. Right. So 
let's just get right to the, the thing. Mike Kohler mentions in the book that Grandpa said, you had the session. That's BS right there because I'll tell you, my grandfather was not, not I wouldn't say a control freak or a tyrant. He was just an alpha, and, and he was like Moses. He's pointing, he's parting Red Seas. Hmm. He's not going to let two young white boys, 17 years old, that he commissioned to help write the song, to head the session. What he did was he went in there and played some drums, and he said, look, when I point, you guys push the red button. <laughs> so people kind of get it, like, twisted a bit. So now he he co-wrote that, and that's a, that's a whole other story, $100 million dollars. I would say I, I would estimate hundred million dollars right. that that was diverted through a, a court case in New York. My my grandfather, uh, as soon as he heard about Elvis, he said Elvis who, and this dude handed him a record. He said Hound Dog, Lieber and Stoller didn't say Johnny Onus on it. He was fuming, so he called Jimmy Tolbert, a black lawyer, prominent, uh, you know, like like the Johnny Cochran uh, in in nineteen fifty three. So they they uh they they took a team of lawyers and they went to New York City. And for about a week, and the court transcripts exist somewhere. They're about a thousand dollars a page. I found out. To uh, it's crazy. It's like I don't know what. It's like Twilight Zone, you know, trying to get. Uh, uh, it's like the Mueller report. Like what? Can, can I just get it? Can I just check it out? <laughs> it's like come on. So they make it really difficult, you know, for for you to. So what happened was he lost the case because uh, th- th- somehow some loophole about a a, a, a um, signature about how. They were 17, and long story short, there was a whole other thing. I, it's it's going to be in the book, but Big Mama Thornton was involved. Don Roby was involved, who was actually a jealous ex-boyfriend, not only the A&R of Duke Peacock Records out of Houston. See, Grandpa plucked Big Mama Thornton out of, out of Houston, hmm. following me. She, he plucked her out of a hotel when he was checking out after a gig. He said, what's that coming out the back? He said, oh, that's just Willie May singing. And she was scrubbing the floor in the hotel room. I mean, literally, it was, it was like a picturesque story like that. And he said, hey, can I take you back to L.A.? And that's when they started this rock and roll thing. There was already rock and roll th- things happening in New Orleans and East Coast. Right. Now, let's fast forward. That that money, right? There's other money that's going on in the family. It's, it's, it's Hand Jive, Willie and the Hand Jive, which was a top ten hit. Uh, there's Every Beat of My Heart, which my grandfather wrote for Gladys Knight in the fifth. Mm. Uh, there's uh, So Fine, you know, go watch Cheech and Chong up and smoke. He's, he's singing it in the first two seconds. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like it's all over the place. So every time you see that, every time, uh, you know, you go to a, a store and buy up and smoke, that a couple pennies go to the royalties. Case in point, when my grandmother passed, the whole thing, and they cut me because they realized that I'm here representing you know what I call the Otis legacy. What I, what I do is is keep my grandfather's spirit alive. I'm not even worried about the money per se, but the blessing of the family would be nice. But I think what happened was they all turned on me, and that's the, that's the reality. Even my father, um, he's be, he's been estranged to me my whole life. He never really accepted me, and that's another thing. Well, there's, there's a lot of things going on with that too. So let me let me ask let me ask you this: When is the last time that you had a straight up Face to face with Shuggy. Uh, I would say before he had his major stroke, which was about a couple years ago, uh, maybe a year before that. Uh-huh. Um, he he was becoming more and more strange. He um he was just uh, he's he was always been out there. Um, you know my my mother and I talked about it. You know, um, 
<laughs> Let's just bust her while we're here. She's still in love with him. It's a Stockholm Syndrome thing happening. You feel me? It's just life. That's just, and that, 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 that's coming from my perspective. She'll sit there and throw her hand up all angry and go, you don't know what you're talking about. But in the real, she'll say, of course I am. Because you can see it the way she outpours on her social media about him. And he said, don't even talk, don't even mention. He did a bird man. He said, don't even mention my name to her. Mm. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's life. It, it's, um, it's like family feud. We can all smile and, and give the answers and win $20,000. But, you know, we're going to fight over the car. John Daly spoke with Jay Vincent, publisher of The Daily Line, about the state of Illinois politics the looming crisis in our state's budgets, and the challenges in the digital media space. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time. So right now in the studio, we have the owner of the Daily Line, who is involved in a bunch of different ventures. We're going to learn a little bit more about those. Jay Vincent, welcome to the studio. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit, before you talk about the Daily Line, I mean, we all want to know... How you put up with 80 quick. What it takes, (laughs) frequent guest on the show, great contributor as well. Um, but you know, before we understand how to become media conglomerates like yourself, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got to, and how you got to own this uh, great property in the city. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. You know, I, I grew up in the South Side, so I grew up in St. Thomas More, 79th and Western, um, right right in that uh, neighborhood. And growing up in the South Side, you get exposed to the various. Uh, Folks you meet throughout your life, from high school to uh, to college, and in my uh, early professional years, landed me here in Chicago, where I met another Southsider, a guy named Ramson Cannon. And uh, Ramson today runs uh, one of the local Democratic Socialist organizations. So you can uh, you can see where we both kind of came from, some of some of the early organizing days uh, that we uh, we shared. So I met Ramson, and, and uh, not long after that, Ramson introduced me to a, a fellow Bridgeporter, um, guy named Jimmy Dispenza, and you know that's kind of how. I came to know about the Daily Line and something that actually used to be called Alder Track. In fact, we're kind of a, you know, what I what I didn't know until we ran into each other um, down on Green Street was that this is actually the the genesis point is Bridgeport for this publication, and it was a great great bit of history to uh, to, to learn about it and and to know that Alder Track once was a, a type pad account that was. Uh, um, Dirtied by your fingers, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so Jim, who's been on the show, absolutely obsessed with game theory, uh, and Jim has been uh, all over the city uh, talking about this stuff. He's involved in an interesting project now um, called the Center for Illinois Politics, I think. That's right. Uh, I, it sounds like they're going to be involved in, in the map uh, that happens in the next uh, reallocation, but uh, Jim is always obsessed with paramutual betting and horse betting and, and the old green sheets and, and how that um, is an analogy for uh, for politics, and so we put together a very very rudimentary survey, like uh, Survey Monkey uh, applet for him on, on that one. You know, it's it's interesting. We're kind of going back to our roots at the Daily Line. My brother and I uh, invested in it when 
when a guy named uh, Mike and, and Ramson and Jim were the owners of it. And it was first, as I said, mentioned, uh, was that it's called Ultratrack. So we're kind of going back to our roots a bit. Um, we're going to be relaunching Aldertrack as, as a service that is kind of uh, in that same spirit. You know, it's, it's going to be about data. It's going to be about um, keeping track of what the city council is up to, and it's going to leverage the, the words, the content created by A.D. Quigg and Heather Sharon over at the Daily Line. But it's also kind of will become kind of a collaboration point for us as we collaborate with the Center for Illinois Politics, I think, and organizations like DataMade and, and others who are in the business of kind of shedding some light on, on the data that we can, we can use to decide if our government's making the right sorts of decisions. Well, that's interesting. There's another guy who's been on the show, Scott Kennedy, who's involved in that, who, you know, runs the, is it uh, I Election Data, who I, I use that site all the time. I mean, it's, it's easily the best correlation of uh, all the D2s and the A1s and, and everything that happens around around politics. I don't think there's a reporter in the city that wouldn't tell you that that's, uh, <laughs> that's one of those great resources that they're grateful exists out there. You know, yeah. Scott's, uh, I, 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 Scott's been a contributor actually in a way with, uh, um, with all, with the daily line, we've done some events recently with the uh, metropolitan planning commission and, and other organizations. And it's been great to see him uh, participate in that. And I know he's added some major value to um, what we're talking about when we're, when we're gathering for those events. You know, I, I want to talk to you about starting and running a, a, a media company in this day and age, because that's obviously a challenge. But before that, you know, obviously today the Supreme Court did hear a case on the census and redistricting, which does affect this state. Uh, it appears the conservative bloc is going to allow a question about citizenship, which has never been on our, our census in 230 years, to go on uh to that, which will be mailed out for the 2020 redistricting. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about how that might affect a state like Illinois, which does have a significant portion of people in its state who are non-citizens, but nonetheless need representation and need representation from uh, policy and, and politicians. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is troublesome. I think the question's been answered, is, is the do elections matter when it comes to the Supreme Court? And I think the answer is yes. You know, this president's been able to uh, turn the court in a different direction. Um, so we're seeing what is likely, and I'm not going to put words in the Supreme Court's mouth, but it does seem to be um, that they're going in that direction. Will there be an impact on Illinois? I think yes. The answer is absolutely yes. Um, and it's maybe not even the policy that is what's so frightening. I think it's the rhetoric for folks that are concerned about answering that question, that they're, they're just going to turn their heads. They're going to, it's going to mean that we're going to see less responses in the state of Illinois. And then that's, and that's troublesome as then you're, you're, you're letting the uh, statisticians basically figure out how best to characterize who we have um, in this state. And the resources that we're going to get from the federal government are going to be dramatically impacted by that. Whether or not we lose a congressional seat based on population loss, uh, unclear, but it certainly could be another census where we're losing we're losing a seat, and this could exacerbate that problem. Yeah, I mean that that to me is interesting because Illinois, obviously, we hear a lot about Chicago losing population, but the state has shrunk, and we, we've of course heard a lot of stories about uh, African Americans in this city, particularly being affected by that. I'm just wondering, just to carry that on just for a second, if politicians uh, are not getting an accurate picture of the people that they represent, doesn't that mean that they're going to be making bad policy? Isn't this a, uh, a decision that unfortunately only benefits a very narrow interest group at the expense of everybody else if this question is added? No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we're, um, I, I think there's a bigger problem as it relates to do, how do our elected officials view what their constituents think. Um, when you see low voter turnout um, in the recent election, uh, in the recent runoff, rather, or you look at what our um, 
our non-presidential year congressional turnout is in, in the local elections. I mean, we our elected officials have not been getting an accurate picture of what their constituents believe, sadly, for a long time. And that's that's not only a problem of, of this census, future censuses, or the, the media conglomeration, et cetera, that is, uh, that is uh, impacted how things get covered in this country. Yeah. It's got to be, and, and I referenced this at the start, it's got to be pretty challenging right now to be a media company uh, in this day and age. We've seen a huge amount of shrinkage, obviously, in newspapers. People could argue that Trump's election has been God's gift to broadcast television and in papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I, I think that in a sober moment, they would agree with that assessment. But it's very challenging, especially when you're, you're in the digital space, to survive without some sort of subscriber base, without some sort of pay-in. Because as I think people who have followed the issue know Google and Facebook have effectively sucked most of the air out of the advertising budget. When, when you guys started The Daily Line, um, how aware were you that it was going to be a difficult road to hoe? And what decisions did you have to make early on to ensure viability, not only from a, a, a business, you know, just a cost-benefit side, but from a journalism side? Because journalism is not cheap either. Well, you know, when we first made the choice to invest in the company, we were excited by something that the, the founders were talking about. And it was this disaggregation of the, the media marketplace. So, you know, the cars section in the newspaper turned into cars.com and the movie section turned into Fandango. And then the, as you look objectively at what is being published in local newspapers about politics and what's happening in government, it was clear that that had shrunk, but yet there was nowhere that there was a home for this sort of um, information that frankly professionals needed. And that's what I thought was so interesting about this publication is that it was really focused on the professionals that need this information. Because it is expensive to create this news, and the average citizen can't afford, frankly, when you're talking in the thousands of subscribers, not the tens of thousands of subscribers. You know, you're really—it's difficult to create a product that the regular consumer can afford. And I, I frankly, I, I know, I know our coverage is good when I hear people complaining to us that hey, that are that are regular citizens that are interested in politics and how their government is making decisions when they're complaining to us about how much it costs for the publication. Because that means we're creating compelling content which is just essential. We can't give it away for free. So we, um, we're, we're learning very uh, frequently about what our subscribers or what our future subscribers are willing to pay for the product. And I think that will, will drive change for us in the future and the other kinds of information that we begin to deliver to our members, um, also known as our subscribers. We kind of have a membership model versus a subscriber model at this point. Um, but when we bought the publication, it was you know, it was clear to us that we wanted to keep it going, um, and we weren't willing to kind of back down and uh, and say, "Hey, we 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 can't create a successful publication here in the long run." You know, it had seen some success, but it needed some additional investment to continue going. So, when my brother and I stepped in to buy it, the first thing we did was recognize that we've never thought we were going to run a newspaper or any sort of media organization in our lives. Our our main business had been very much marketing, sales promotion, um, public affairs sort of work for many years, and camp as well as campaigns. You know, we're one of those professionals being served by this publication in the early days. So when it, when it boils down to it, we, we knew we didn't want it to, to, to go away, and we knew that we didn't have all the answers to how it should be run, and we certainly didn't know, because we're not journalists, how to run this publication. Um, from a journalist perspective. So the smartest thing we did was hire Heather Sharon to be the managing director, frankly. And she's been able to really build a team here, um, anchored in Chicago here by A.D. Quigg and Heather herself and Hannah Mizell in Springfield, that gives us the ability to create some compelling 
professional content for our sort of subscriber, government affairs firms, law firms, real estate developers, um, highly influential folks that are doing business with the city um, and the county government as well as down in Springfield. So, um, but it's an ongoing learning experience, frankly, like what does work. Yeah, 32nd is just brutal. How can they leave the street like this in front of a school? The city debt works. I'm pretty sure half the street has fallen into the Coporo's basement at this point. Mother I just bought that tire. Wow, that hole's huge. What the hell was that? Katie ran over a pothole. It's fine. Are you sure? I'd probably shoot that car and put it out of his misery. Right. No, it's not a Yugo. Hey. Do you guys hear that? Uh, it sounds like it's coming from under your tire. Did you guys hit someone? Quick, we better torch the car now before We're the cops We're not burning get here. anything. Jesus. Help me push the car back. Uh, Kyle? Uh, why is he wearing yeah. a uniform? Why is someone under the street in the first uh, place? How is that even possible? Oh, hey, guys. Oh, those fallen street racks really hurt my champ area. Oh. Uh, Jess, what uh, are you guys doing down there? Uh, Kyle's showing me around the underside. There's tunnels running all through Bridgeport. Come on down. Uh, I'm not so good with confined spaces. Ah, yes, your deadly fun allergy. Come on, guys, leave old man Trekker up there. The door's right in the back of the Copro. Whoa, it's huge down here and super creepy. I don't get it. How is there all this room underneath the streets? Say, Jess, why don't you give them a history lesson? Okay, so all the streets in Bridgeport were raised in the 1850s by 14 feet due to flooding. That left all these tunnels. They go all the way up to uptown. Yeah, that El Cazon guy used to use them for the bubbles right under the cops' noses. But Kyle, why are you wearing a uniform? Well, Professor Shannington, I'm a dutifully monetized and bonded member of Tristero, the Undertown Postal Society. And these tunnels is how we deliver the messages from the world beyond. You're an underground mailman? You're the least reliable person I know. I am deeply recognizated in that remark, Shannon. I've been delivering the undertown mail since the 1950s, I'll have you know. While that almost certainly can't be true, Shanna, the most important information is that there's a dead letter office down here. Unclaimed goods. Okay. Brought my knife, ready for inspection. Hey, I can't stand around here all day jibber-jabbering. The man leads delivering. So if you guys want to come along, I only got about a dozen more stops. Whoa, that's a pretty sweet mail cart you have there. Yeah, we put a lot of tires from Bridgeport on these old rail carts. Now, you got to stick close, because it ain't all fun and games down here. What's uh, with the musical cues, Kyle? That's the signal to level up, Jess. You're all gonna need infinite hit points for this job. Please turn off the boombox. Ah, you are not as fun as you claim. All right, kids, we gotta stop by Cheddar's house. He's the guy who gets that giant stack of magazines right there. Gigantic asses? Beautiful burrows? <whistles> Look at the hooves on Donkey Miss April. Yeah, he handles all the beasts of burden. You need him down here. Ah, there you go. And the next stop is the gas plant, where we turn all your waste into the beautiful clean fuel that powers Undertown. Gross. It smells like a sewer. It is a sewer. Waste snot wants snot. That's what we say. Oh, what's the spur coming up? Just grab the lever. What lever? The one on your left. The other left. Oh, no, this is terrible. We're still on the rails. It can't be that bad. No, you don't understand. We're headed into Underport's Bridge. 
Kyle, you just lost boombox privileges for a week. Submit. 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 Is that a squid on the back of their head? Quit just ramming my wacken shovel. They've been taken over by the flying cavalry. That's a frying pan, you idiot. Wacken good, just no mercy. There's an ink sack? It's everywhere? Get it in your mouth. Thanks will burrow through your stomach. I'm whacking, I'm whacking. They just keep coming. You will bow before Cyoctorax. Of the We're going over the falls in the Palmasano. Hang on, guys. Ah! Oh my God, that's cold. Where the heck are we? And why do I want sushi? Oh, thank heavens you made it. Physically, perhaps. I, I think I lost three or four sanity points. That's nothing but the life of an undertown mailman, Jess. What do you say we get this cart back up on the rails and I'll give you rides back to the Copro? No. Oh, okay, but you don't have to be rude about it. This week on the Trump Diaries, from total exoneration to total BS, Trump tries to sue the House, complaining about all-out war against him. The House subpoenas McGahn, Barr, and Mueller as the fallout from the report mushrooms. And Rudy's back. Here is latest attempt at lawyering. These are the Trump Diaries. Date 120, April 19th. As the revelations from the Mueller report continued to spill out, Trump reacted with frantic, angry tweeting. At one point, Trump tweeted, Game over, in the Game of Thrones font, drawing a rebuke from HBO. He then spent the rest of the morning complaining about crooked, dirty cops and the DNC, the Democrats, and presidential harassment. Trump also falsely claimed that statements about him by certain people in Mueller's crazy report are total BS, made by people trying to make themselves look good. However, the Mueller report's conclusions were damning. Trump's White House is infused by a culture of dishonesty, starting with Trump. Trump repeatedly lies to the public and his own staff and then tries to get his aides to lie for him. Trump repeatedly threatened to fire lieutenants who did not carry out his wishes, while they repeatedly threatened to resign rather than cross lines. Aides routinely disregarded Trump's wishes. Mueller said also that Trump is gripped by paranoia. Mueller said explicitly that Russian officials and business executives offered assistance to Trump and the people around him. The campaign accepted the Russian overtures, which came in the midst of a stabilizing Russian-led effort to prevent Hillary Clinton from winning. In addition, Trump privately asked Michael Flynn and other campaign officials to obtain Clinton's deleted emails. Trump was obsessed with the Mueller investigation and believed it could ruin him. Mueller's report detailed 11 instances and efforts to cover up Trump's actions. Those instances left administration officials and White House attorneys deeply alarmed. Mueller said Trump may have obstructed justice through a pattern of conduct that included firing James Comey, trying to remove Mueller, publicly praising and condemning witnesses, and seeking to limit the scope of the probe. The House Judiciary Committee subpoenaed the Justice Department for Robert Mueller's full report, including grand jury testimony and other material not made public. Attorney General William Barr will testify to the committee on May 2nd. Robert Mueller is also expected to testify. Federal prosecutors are pursuing 14 other investigations that were referred to them by Mueller. Those include charges already known against Michael Cohen and Gregory Craig. The other 12 referrals were redacted due to the continuing investigations. And the House subpoenaed nine banks as part of an investigation into Trump's financial dealings and potential money laundering tied to Russia. The banks subpoenaed were J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Capital One, Deutsche Bank, RBC, and Toronto Dominion Bank. Also, Sears named Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin in a lawsuit against the company's former CEO. The lawsuit alleges that Mnuchin assisted Edward Lampert in stripping the retailer of more than $2 billion in assets while Sears was in bankruptcy. 
821 April 20th. A far-right militia group in New Mexico detained groups of migrant families at gunpoint. The group, the United Constitutional Patriots, approached migrants with guns drawn, misrepresenting themselves by saying they were Border Patrol. The ACLU has called the group an armed fascist militia organization. Their leader, Larry Hopkins, was subsequently arrested on federal charges of being a felon in possession of firearms and ammunition. The group is also alleged to have made plans to assassinate Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. New Mexico Republicans have previously cheered the group's actions. Sarah Huckabee Sanders told Mueller's investigators that she lied when she said that countless FBI agents had told her they were thankful Trump had fired James Comey. Sanders told Mueller's office she made a slip of the tongue and the claim was, quote, made in the heat of the moment, was not founded on anything. In fact, Sanders made the statements multiple times. When pressed on it, Sanders doubled down and said, quote, I'm sorry that I wasn't a robot like the Democrat Party. Vladimir Putin convened a meeting with Russian oligarchs after Trump is elected, encouraging them to make contact with the transition team and establish back-channel communications. Putin and the kleptocrats were attempting to have sanctions eased and have their seizure of Crimea in Ukraine recognized. Also, Russian hackers were apparently able to breach at least one Florida County government role through a spear phishing campaign and one Illinois voter role. Date 122, April 21st. Alleged lawyer Rudy Giuliani reappeared on TV and claimed, quote, there's nothing wrong with taking information from Russians. When he was asked if it was okay to use information stolen by a foreign government, Rudy Giuliani said, quote, it depends on the stolen material. He then added Russia, quote, shouldn't have stolen it, but the American people were just given more information. Eric Prince, the brother of Betsy DeVos, helped finance the effort to obtain Hillary Clinton's deleted emails in 2016. Prince provided funding to hire a tech advisor to ascertain the authenticity of the emails. Trump continued to seethe over the portrait. Mueller's report painted of White House counsel Don McGahn, claiming that, quote, nobody disobeys my orders. McGahn may have actually saved Trump's presidency when he refused to fire Robert Mueller. Trump also claimed that Democrats can't impeach him because only high crimes and misdemeanors can lead to impeachment and there were no crimes by me. The Trump campaign hired a new in-house attorney for its 2020 campaign, moving its business from McGahn's law firm Jones Day. Quote, why in the world would you want to put your enemy on the payroll? They do not want to reward McGahn's firm. Date 123, April 22nd. The House Judiciary Committee subpoenaed Don McGahn as part of its investigation into Trump's obstruction of justice. The subpoena demands that McGahn testify on May 21st and provide documents by May 7th. Trump and the Trump Organization sued Democratic House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings to block a subpoena that sought 10 years of tax returns and other financial information. In the suit, Trump's lawyers claimed that Democrats have, quote, declared all-out political war against him with subpoenas as their weapon of choice. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris became the first prominent Democrats to call for Trump's impeachment in the wake of the Mueller report. Herman Cain withdrew himself from consideration for the Fed. Cain's previous foray in politics, a run for the Republican nomination, ended after allegations surfaced that he had sexually harassed several women while he was running Godfather's Pizza, and that he'd had an extramarital affair. Trump called those allegations, quote, an unfair witch hunt, and Cain a truly wonderful man. Cain runs a pro-Trump super PAC. Meanwhile, Trump's other pick for the Fed, Stephen Moore, wrote in an op-ed that there, quote, should be no more women's refs, no women announcers, no women beer vendors, no women anything at men's college basketball games. The State Department ended waivers for countries importing Iranian oil. China, India, and Turkey are among Iran's top customers. The move immediately sent oil prices higher. And a study of Trump's tariffs on washing machines showed they had raised the cost of the machines by about $86 per unit last year and dryers by $92. While the tariffs created roughly 1,800 new U.S. manufacturing jobs, each new job cost about $817,000. Day 124, April 23rd. 
Trump failed to comply with the deadline set by House Democrats to release his tax returns to Congress, setting up what is expected to be an extended legal clash between the two branches of government. Trump also instructed aides to defy subpoenas and not appear before Congress. The Treasury tried to buy more time, saying they would have a definitive answer by next week. One aide, the former White House Personnel Security Director, is to be held in contempt of Congress for failing to appear at a hearing investigating White House security clearance procedures. Carl Klein has been accused of overriding career national security officials to approve security clearances to people such as Trump's in-laws. Klein in all overrode 25 such objections, an unprecedented number. Elijah Cummings, the chairman of the committee, said, quote, The White House and Mr. Klein now stand in open defiance of duly authorized congressional subpoena with no assertion of any privilege of any kind by Trump. Jared Kushner claimed the Mueller investigation was way more harmful than the Russian interference into the 2016 election. Kushner described the massive disinformation campaign run by Russia as, quote, a couple Facebook ads intended to sow discontent. Kushner also said the idea the Trump campaign colluded with the Russian government is nonsense. In fact, Mueller's report shows hundreds of documented contacts between Russia and Trump's team and is devastating on Russia's 2016 disinformation campaign. In a related matter, Paul Manafort reported to federal prison. He to serve seven and a half years. And Trump abruptly announced a boycott of the annual White House Correspondents Association dinner. Trump has been mercilessly mocked at the dinner in the past. Day 825, April 24th. Trump said that complying with congressional requests was unnecessary after the White House cooperated with the Mueller probe. Quote, there is no reason to go any farther, and especially in Congress where it's very partisan, obviously very partisan. I don't want people testifying to a party because that is what they're going to do if they do this. Trump's position is legally unsustainable. The White House cannot summarily block all document production and testimony. Congress will hold those people in contempt. Kirsten Nielsen reportedly trying to raise the alarm over accelerated levels of Russian hacking ahead of the 2020 election. He was told to keep it from Trump. Homeland Security officials are adamant the United States needs to significantly step up efforts with the American public and companies to block foreign influence campaigns. However, Trump refuses to discuss it. The feeling is it undermines his legitimacy as president. Trump went on a 24-hour tweet storm signaling he is feeling the pressure from investigations in Congress and in the release of the Mueller report. Trump demanded an apology from the New York Times after falsely claiming they had apologized to him in 2016. He complained he doesn't get enough credit for the economy. He lied about Twitter and ripped into the so-called radical left Democrats. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court's conservative majority signaled it is likely to allow the Trump administration to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The census has not asked a citizenship question since 1950, and lower courts have repeatedly blocked the questions. The lower courts also found that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross lied about his motivations for adding the questions. Experts say the question is designed to frighten non-citizens and depress the count. Several states, including Illinois, could lose seats in the House as well as federal money. Trump met with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and complained the company was stripping him of followers. Trump tweeted, quote, They don't treat me well as a Republican, very discriminatory, hard for people to sign on, constantly taking people off lists. No wonder Congress wants to get involved, and they should. Must be more and fairer companies to get out the word. Whatever that means. Dorsey reportedly tried to explain that the company bans bots that follow people. Trump's anger is reportedly driven by the fact that Barack Obama, who tweets less, has far more followers than he does. Noted racist Steve King said that his ostracization by House colleagues for defending white supremacy has made him identify with what Jesus went through. Speaking at an event in Iowa following a censure, King claimed that, quote, when I had to step down to the floor of the House and look up at those 400 and some accusers, you know, we've just passed through Easter and Christ's passion, I have a better insight into what Jesus went through for us, partly because of that experience. King was responding to a question from a constituent who claimed that, quote, Christianity is really being persecuted here in the United States. 
and Trump's approval rating cratered to the lowest level of his presidency in the wake of the Mueller report. Trump's approval rating is now 35%. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 spoke with critic, author, and scholar Liesl Olson about her new book, Chicago Renaissance. Olson discussed how her book ingeniously argues that women were at the center of the city's major art movements, why Chicago deserves to be the birthplace of modernism, and her contemporary criticism. I-94 airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Give it up for Ms. Liesl Olson. For those of you that don't know, uh, Ms. Olson is at the Newberry Library, for one. She's a scholar. She's a critic. Uh, she's been all over the place. And why don't we start off by how you, first of all, got interested in writing about this subject in particular mm-hmm. and your focus on turn of the century, Chicago machinations in artwork and literature. Mm-hmm. First of all, th- hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to be here in this gorgeous bookstore. Um, yeah, the origins of Chicago Renaissance. It's a good question. Um, I moved to Chicago about 15 years ago. Um, I moved from New York City, where I had oh, been doing too. my graduate work. <laughs> and um, I was very excited to return to the Midwest. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and I moved here to take a teaching job at the University of Chicago. And I had been trained as a scholar of 20th century literature, particularly a scholar of modernism. So I was really interested in the stylistic experiments of the 20th century. So writers like James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Wallace Stevens, Gertrude Stein, um, people who were real innovators in terms of literary style. And when I moved to Chicago, um, just being here prompted me to think about or ask, you know, who were the great Chicago writers who really were part of the larger modernist movement, which was a really global movement happening in places not only like Chicago, but New York and Paris, Vienna, London, really across the world. Um, And I just didn't really know that much about what was going on here from the turn of the century through the first half of the 20th century. So I knew Carl Sandburg, certainly. But I'd actually never been taught his work in graduate school. I mean, I think he had kind of fallen out of the canon. People thought he was more of a populist poet, a narrative poet, not a, really, not a real stylistic innovator. Um, so I just hadn't really been taught his work. I knew some of the greatest hits, but I didn't know his work in depth. Um, and so I really set out to kind of give myself an education in what I thought I should know. And I read a lot. I mean, there are some great books written about uh, Chicago and Chicago culture. But I felt like there wasn't a book that could give me a larger sense of the network of players who were involved in really um, um, experimenting stylistically, but also who were part of a larger, broader kind of transatlantic avant-garde. And I particularly was exasperated that there were no books that paid attention to the women. So um, people like Harriet Monroe, who founded Poetry Magazine in 1912, and who published some of the most important poets of the 20th century, um, and herself was a really interesting poet and art critic. People like, Harry, or not Harriet Monroe, like uh, Margaret Anderson, of course, who had a studio right here in the Fine Arts Building. Um, super interesting woman who launched the Little Review, which, like Poetry Magazine, was a little magazine, but also published um, uh, political editorials, art, um, fiction as well. Is that where you And of course, yes, yes, you're exactly right. right. So she and her partner, Jane Heap, 
who had been a student at the School of the Art Institute and gave a little review, a really interesting visual flair. She and Jane Heap um, took on Ulysses, and they published almost half of that novel um, here in the United States in the Little Review. It was the first place in the States, of course, where Ulysses was published. And they were put on trial for publishing obscenity, and they lost. Um, but a very wealthy Chicago uh, philanthropist put their legal bills, and so um, they continued to publish. And, of course, she took that magazine other places. It didn't stay in Chicago uh, for uh, all but a few years. But she certainly was... Um, you know, was a product of Chicago, we'll say that. So Harriet Monroe, Margaret Anderson, many, many, many other women. Fanny Butcher, the longtime literary editor of the Chicago Tribune, um, a wonderful librarian named Vivian G. Or Vivian Harsh, who um, organized a book review and lecture forum down on the South Side, which was really, really important to the intellectual and artistic community of Bronx. She was the librarian at she all? She was a librarian, yeah. yeah. Um, we still have a Vivian Harsh uh, African-American collection at the Woodson Library. Oh, yeah, yeah down on 95th. Exactly. The South, yeah. South Side Regional. Yeah. yeah, and that, I mean, that was such a boon to me as I wrote this book um, using those archives. Uh, so Vivian Harsh, when she would invite uh, writers and um, you know, thinkers and activists into her book uh, forum, she would also ask them if she could have their papers. Um, and so she started this uh, collection, which is now at 95th and Halstead, which is attached to the Chicago Public Library. Um, and it has, you know, greatly expanded, you know, since um, her time. And it's the biggest repository of materials about and by African Americans in the Midwest. Oh, so, are there like yeah. manuscripts and letters down there? Yeah, kind of there's some really cool stuff. Special collections. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it's you know, it's anybody can go see this stuff. So there's the manuscript of uh, Langston Hughes's A Big C. There are the papers of Horace Caton, who was one of the um, you know authors, sociologists of Black Metropolis, the 1945 study of Chicago, the South Side of Chicago. There are the papers of the Chicago Defender, the people who ran and published the Chicago Defender. I mean, Arabelle Thompson, who was a longtime editor at Ebony Magazine. Zillions of collections that are really, really cool. Yeah. So back to your original question, I felt like the, the a study about Chicago and Chicago culture that um, really tapped into the people who ran the bookstores, organized the salons, started the little magazines, who created the infrastructure for Chicago, uh, for Chicago literary culture. That I really wanted to account for. And I think it's interesting, you make a, a fairly, you don't, it's not an overt point, but I felt it was a very sneaky point in the first part of the book, <laughs> that many of the people that did form this infrastructure were women. They yeah. were largely uncompensated. They yeah. were largely ignored. Right. Uh, and I think you've done a really excellent job throughout the book in weaving together a lot of these tales and telling us about people that, frankly, I think many of us have forgotten about. Right. If we know these names, they're... Uh, on the name of a library, perhaps, or right. their reference in a book. But many of the stories that you're telling, uh, you know, Monroe is a great example. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that she had written the laudatory opening poem for uh, the Chicago World's Fair. Right. You know, to me, she was somebody that drifted around, but I had always thought of her as, as somebody with dubious connections to Ezra Pound, who was a very dubious Fair person, enough. you know. Yeah. And so. Well, she battled with him, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, he's kind of a, I can't say the word on the air, but he, right. you know. Uh, you I'm know. with you. I probably but feel the same way. You know. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I think that was a really interesting thing. And I think it, it's, um, I use the word sneaky in an in approving manner. Mm. I, I just think that this was one of those uh, things that is an undercurrent through this book that I, I really appreciated because so often, um, 
and you make this point as well, the story of Chicago literature is often told in very hyper-masculine terms. Right. Sherwood Anderson, um, uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, these uh, Carl Sandburg, right. uh, people t- speaking in um, what was thought of as very proto-masculine style. Right. Big shoulders. Yeah, right. but I mean, you know, I think that's, as you point out very well, that's that as much of an artifice as anything else. You know, when we're writing, it, it is a, it's a pose. Right. It's not necessarily something that exists, uh, but it became a style, and that became very closely associated with Chicago. So it's very interesting to me that the people that actually backed this all up mm-hmm. were this large network of women. Right. So the question is... Um, why is that about Chicago that it has? Because I do think there's some truth to this myth of the kind of uh, machismo male author defining the literary culture of the city. I mean, these are all authors who I treat um, with you know some extensive attention in the book: Sandberg, Hemingway, Sherwood Anderson. Um, you know, they they are important to the culture. But why is it that there is this kind of hypermasculinist pose? <laughs> I'm sure you've probably seen this all over the internet. A uh, mm-hmm. new scientific picture came out after years of data collection. Right. Global team of programmers pouring over mm-hmm. terabytes of data. Dozens of, of radio images. Right. It, and finally, though, um, the for the first time ever, sure. a picture, an image yes. of the GIR field, the gravitational adjacent radial field, or the Garfield, perhaps. Um, so uh, you, I know you studied electrical engineering at, at Columbia yes. for a semester. Yes. So, so this is probably, you're probably familiar with this, but for the sake of the listener, yeah. the gravitational adjacent radial field. Um, so there's a variation in radio waves mm-hmm. that occur um, as they pass over objects, sure. particularly um sort of the sedentary, high-mass, large surface area objects. Yeah. Something that, like, perhaps a, some sandpaper or um, uh, diatomaceous earth compacted mm-hmm. or perhaps even a, a sort of a furry or fuzzy object of yes. sufficiently large yeah. mass and low momentum. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, Stephen Hawking talked about hairless black holes. Mm-hmm. These are very hairy. Right. And it's the opposite of that. Yeah, exactly. And so there's these variations in the in radio waves that occur over that. And these had been hypothesized to exist for a while, but there had been no clear image of them. So what ended up being constructed, excuse yes. me, was the um an array, specifically the laser amplified sonic and gravitational numerator array. Okay. Or the uh, L A S A G N A. Um, so okay. what this device did was it's a, it's a, it's really a series of devices. Okay. Um, well, it's an array. It's, it's, it's an array. Correct. So it, it's, it was kind of built in parts or layers perhaps. <laughs> all the, uh, yes. Many of those layers being very similar. Right. Yeah. All across it's, the world. Yeah. It's a number of, uh, uh there are a number of, uh, essentially flexible wafers, um, sandwiching a, uh, highly viscous fluid. <laughs> What, what color is that fluid? Yeah, I, I would not. I would not know. You would have to ask. Um, that being said, I do know it's it's really not a fluid. It's more of a colloid. You yeah. would sort of a sort of a um, sort of organic. Have, yeah. Um, and what what happens is is that there's through these wafers into this um, 
this uh, this suspended um, uh, let's just call it a sauce. Um, it reacts to minor variations in these energy fields as would be expected from the Gar field. And what that allows it to do is the LASAGNA um, yeah. lures in the Gar field and then <laughs> through the um, movement of these wafers, uh, it ejects something known as oscillating deuterium, yes. um, a.k.a. ODIs. Um, and these ODs, what happens is, is, is as the as, as the Garfield is trapped in the um, the numerator array, sure. um, the ODs are ejected. The oscillatorium deuterium is ejected, sure. or perhaps kicked yes. out of the space by by the GAR yeah. field. Um, and it is the detection of these um, these falling ODs that allow uh, a picture to be put together. Sure. Um, that's, and, that's amazing, right? And so you've probably seen the picture online. I've seen, yes, I've seen three three pictures right next to each other. Are we cool yet? 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 Feline also popped by to drop some new tracks from her just released EP. Feline's new song is here exclusively on Lumpin. This is the radio premiere of Blood Sisters.
The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Schellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Schellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.